anyways. <laughs> yes. All right, let's read the Bible. Uh, now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over into Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And after he arrived, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So where we've left off in the book of Acts, we've been just kind of making our way through it. Uh, Paul has just left Corinth. I, have a, I think I have a little map of the journey that Paul's taken, right? He's left Corinth. He's gone across to Ephesus and then taken a boat down back into Israel, uh, gone to Jerusalem. And then he begins to make his way up north through land, through Syria, and then over into, back into Turkey, in, into Ephesus. And while he's doing that swirl around the Mediterranean, making his way, we, we, we are introduced to a, a different person. The, the narrative focuses on this guy named Apollos. He's an Alexandrian, a, a North African. Um, he is known for his eloquence. And he comes to Ephesus, uh, which is where Paul had left Priscilla and Aquila. So he was over in Corinth for a long time, 18 plus months. Um, left Corinth, went with Priscilla and Aquila, crossed over to Ephesus, across the uh, Aegean Sea there left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and then travels on to Jerusalem. And while he's on that trip down to Jerusalem and then back up, he left Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila there. Um, and uh, he, 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 those are his friends, his friends in ministry, and Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. They're, they're work with the believers there, teaching them, instructing them. They, they were people who were knowledgeable about the scriptures. They were, they were people, a husband and wife couple, who, who preached the word of God regularly. Um, and this guy shows up, uh, this, this, this person in, in Ephesus named Apollos shows up among Priscilla Aquila, and as it says, he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, so he's knowledgeable about Jesus, and he is fervent in spirit, so he's just really passionate about preaching the gospel to people, and he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus. So the things that he's saying are, are accurate. They're, they're drawn from the scriptures. He's representing Jesus correctly. And, and what, a, I mean, what a blessing for Priscilla and Aquila to have somebody like that. I, I think it's worth noting, though, that the narrative here, right, primarily up to this point, well, in the beginning we were sort of focusing on Peter, and then starting in Acts 8 and 9, the narrative starts to shift over onto, into to Paul, and we've been following Paul along, um, but really this, this focus on the individual people, Peter, Peter and Paul, it's just really a literary device to, to make the narrative cohere, right? We, we, we aren't focusing on Peter and Paul because they're the most important people. They're just significant people whose who's telling of their story actually helps to tell the real story of the book of Acts, the book of Acts is really, is not a story about Paul and all the things that Paul did. The book of Acts is a story about God's work in the world to advance the mission, this peaceful invasion of the Holy Spirit into the world with the gospel, with the power of the Spirit. So, so Paul is a character, a, par, a part of that, 
And he's kind of the, the focus of the narrative because it needs to focus on something. That's the way, that's the way narrative works, right? But really the story, the, the, the main character is God working through Paul, through Peter, through Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, through the church. The Holy Spirit has a whole team of people. It's the point I'm trying to make. And, and Bob just gave like a little sermonette about that, right? The Holy Spirit has deployed people and sent them out, not just the superstars, not the Apolloses and the Pauls and the Peters. He's got a whole team, Priscilla and Aquila, this, this husband and wife team, this tent-making couple, humble people who are just there doing, doing the, the daily stuff of, of teaching people, instructing, caring for the church. And then there are so many others along the way that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. Don't lose sight that this is just a story about the Holy Spirit using a ton of people to bring forward the gospel into the world. It's not the story of a few gifted people. It's the story of the Holy Spirit, the one who is the gift, moving in people. And all that's to say is that we really need to know this. The church then and now, is not led by or advanced by or, or dependent on a few gifted people. The church is a, is a team of people gathered by the Spirit. And um, like John Wimber used to say, everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play. That's the thing. Not like, you know, when your kid is on a sports team, he's really not that good. So they put him in for like a minute just to give him a sense that, oh, he, he did something. You give him a participation trophy at the end of the day, you know? Not like that. Like everybody gets to play. Everybody has the same Holy Spirit. That was a crazy thing that I realized at one point. I had a pastor in Connecticut, Pastor John, and, and he really believed that. And like I was like a 24, 25, 26-year-old kid at one point. And then I was like leading worship and I was like going to say something at the end. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I said something like that's your thing to say. And he just said, well, it's the same Holy Spirit. It's not like, it's not like he's like a special person. Like, it's not about him. It wasn't about his leadership. It's that we're all being led by the same Holy Spirit. Everybody gets to, to play in this high stakes, big picture, you know, Super Bowl level mission that God is playing out. And it's not dependent on our skill. It's not that the most skilled or the most competent, like, I mean, here, Apollos is an eloquent man. Sure, that, that's a valuable tool for the kingdom. But Apollos needed actually Priscilla and Aquila, who were not elegant, eloquent people necessarily, but people who were knowledgeable to fill in his knowledge gap. And our skill, the only thing that we really need to play is that we need to seek the empowering and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to trust him. We need to play our zone, whatever that is. Yes, another sports analogy. I barely understand it, but I think I did it right. Right? You play the zone, you understand, oh, no, this is my area, I own this area, the ball comes here, I'm playing. I'm not letting the bigger player come over and do the work. I've got all the skill that, you know, whatever the, 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 the most, there's the most, you know, best athlete, I don't, yeah. I went too far. I went too far because I don't know anything about sports. Russell Wilson doesn't play. Oh, I'm sorry. Who is the guy now? Gino. Gino doesn't play all the positions, right? Doesn't have to because other, everybody gets to play. 
You have a zone. You've been put in a context. You've been given a ministry. You don't need to depend on um, some eloquent person to do the ministry that the Holy Spirit has called you to. He will empower and lead you in. Your role, your skill is dependent on his skill and competence. Your success depends on your trust and your willingness to go where the Spirit will lead you. And until we come to that understanding that each of us is called into mission, I think we're just going to be missing out. Not missing out on your potential, because that's just like a silly mental trap that you can get into. But I think actually it's missing out on your identity that you've been given and that you're invited into. You have, because you are in Christ, a new vocation. You are to be, called to be, enabled to be, equipped to be a person who has a life with God. And that is a crazy thing that you didn't earn and is not based on your skill or on your performance or on your potential. It's something that's just been given by God. 1 Peter 2.9, a verse that I love, a great memory verse. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, being a part of God's mission, being a part of God's family, being a part of, 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 of having a ministry and, and being entrusted with your zone by the Holy Spirit um, and a part of his mission to reach the world, it's not something that we're called to do just because it's something that comes naturally. Or, uh, but, but it's something that, that will, will come naturally when we understand who we are and what story we're caught up in. We were once people who hadn't received mercy, but now we're people who have been invited into the presence of God, forgiven of sin, filled with his life. We have a life with him. We didn't have it before. The only thing that changed is that we, by God's grace, were invited in. He intervened in our life. He, like, shined like marvelous light where we were just wandering in darkness before. You did, we didn't do anything to earn our way into this. I, I certainly can't earn my way to the sun coming out here in Washington in the spring, right? It just comes whenever it wants to. The other day, it was hailing at 10 o'clock, and at 10.10, it was sunny. I don't understand what, what the light does or where it goes or why it does it. It just does what it wants to do. But when it's out, boy, am I happy. I am excited to be in the light when the light's coming. It's nice when you can feel it. It would be nice if we could feel it, Lord. Like a little heat. It's nice to see it, but feeling it would be good. I believe. Um, we were once people who did not have mercy. We were once people walking in darkness. Suddenly, the light came. Jesus poured out his mercy. And our identity changed. We, were, we are now a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, holy people, his own possession, and we have this vocation of just proclaiming his praises. That's as simple as it gets. That's your zone. That's your mission. Talk about Jesus. Talk about what he's done. Understand that he's made you into something that you were not by his mercy. Just celebrate what he's done. Proclaim his praises. It doesn't take a seminary education to do that. It doesn't take a position in the church to do that. It doesn't take anything 
but a heart that recognizes what Jesus has done and responds with thankfulness. That's all you need to do. You're capable of that. I promise you, you're capable of that. So jumping back into the text, okay, we see something very interesting. It's kind of where we're going to spend the rest of our, our time here this morning. Um, we see Apollos show up, and here's what it says about him. He was fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. That is interesting. Apollos was a, a smart guy, an eloquent guy, a guy who was fervent in the spirit, he taught accurately about Jesus, but he only knew about John's baptism. So what does that mean? What is, what is this about? Well, we have the benefit, which by the way, he didn't. We have the benefit of having the gospels to help make us clear what, what John taught, right? So Matthew 3, John the Baptist says this, like this is his little, little story about John and baptism. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. So this John the Baptist had, had a mission and a ministry of repentance, and people would come to him, and this was this message. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It's coming near. God is finally sending the Messiah. You need to repent in anticipation of that. And then, skipping ahead a little bit, he says this, I will baptize you with water for repentance. That's John's baptism. I will baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, Apollos understood who John was. He understood that John was the one preparing Israel for the Messiah. And Apollos knew who Jesus was because he preaches Jesus, preaches that Jesus is, is Lord through the scriptures. Uh, he was traveling around teaching people that Jesus is the one who would come after John, he, that he's the Messiah. Jesus is the one who is going to come who's more powerful than John. Apollos got that. He, he understood that much. But um, what he didn't know is really what that would mean. What was that all about? He didn't know that John said about Jesus that he's going to baptize you with uh, the Holy Spirit and with fire. I mean, again, because think about this. The Gospels weren't written yet. The, these are, the Gospels were compiled very early on through the witnesses, first, first-hand accounts, but, but at this point, in, in the history of the church, they, they didn't have the Bible that they could refer to. It wasn't like he just failed to look up the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew wasn't written. Um, so he didn't have this understanding of, of the full picture of what John was intending to do and what had come to pass as a result of the Holy Spirit uh, coming down with the, with the apostles um, at Pentecost. He didn't have the full picture. And I know, okay, how many people are squirming in their seats right now? And there's some of you. There's some of you. You're squirming in these seats right now. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. Because you're going to wonder if people are going to start hooping and hollering and running down the aisles and stuff. Because we're talking about the Holy Spirit and in fire. Um, and you're wondering, man, what's, what's going to happen? You're wondering, are there people hiding in the back to catch people as they fall over? Do we have those set up? They are, they are not. They're not. We don't have that. And... I sort of get it, like whenever, whenever I talk about the Holy Spirit, I understand 
that the context uh, of, of people, people have a lot of different experiences of the Holy Spirit. Some people have very positive ideas of what it means like to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. And some people have less positive experiences or ideas about what that might mean, okay? Um, and I get it because the church really, especially since the start of the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s, has been just navigating, maybe clumsily, through, through questions about what does it mean, what is the whole, who is the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit operate, what does it mean for believers to be baptized in the Spirit, and trying to navigate. And by trying to navigate that, I really mean fighting a lot about it. We've been doing that for a long time in the church. It's, it can be contentious at times when we're talking about the Holy Spirit and how does the Holy Spirit operate and what should we expect of the Holy Spirit and what does it look like in the church when, we, when the church is gathered to have people be baptized in the Spirit. Like, and are we all going to be talking in tongues and running up and down and waving our flags and, you know, all the many things that the church historically has been fighting about. And if you have no idea about any of that, God bless you. You've missed a, something that you... These, should be happy that you missed. Uh, but a lot of you guys have been in the church a long time, and you know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. I believe, and, and we believe, like this church believes, that the text of Scripture is the authority. Like the text of Scripture is where we look to to understand what is, what is normative for, for practice and belief. And I think you probably believe that too, because you wouldn't probably be coming here. Uh, and so, like, let's just, we need to, when we're thinking about these issues, ask this question first. What does the Bible teach about baptism in the Spirit? Because that's really the only relevant question. It's the relevant question. Uh, what we see here, and in the rest of the passage that we're going to read, though, is that Apollos and others, who, who they don't know about uh, the baptism in the Spirit, what they do is they, they stop, and they listen, and they turn to the scriptures, and they open them up, and then they learn, and then they accept. That's kind of the pattern that these people who are unsure of, unaware of, maybe a little skeptical of the Holy Spirit, they, they come, and they, and they learn, they accept, and God, God uses them in powerful ways. Uh, it's, not, it's not really weird, big, emotional, emotionally manipulative kind of thing. It's these people just come in, and they recognize wow, God is doing actually more than we anticipated that he was going to do. There's an awareness of the baptism of, of repentance, but then there's like this whole other thing that they just didn't know about. And actually, it's, it's, like, it's like more, and it's, it's, it's better. It's good. It's a, it's a pleasant surprise for them. And the great news is that the author of Acts knows, coming into this scene, that Apollos will, will the, the, the whole Apollos thing, who doesn't know about, the, the, only knows about the baptism of John, is going to stir some questions, and so gives us another scene to answer some of the questions that we might have, right? So let's get back in the text. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. It goes on. He says, while Apollos was in Corinth, so, so okay, just quickly, Apollos was in Ephesus. He goes to Corinth. He crosses the Aegean Sea into Corinth, starts to teach there, and as he goes, Paul arrives from his trip to Jerusalem. Okay. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which I really love. I love it. Um, see, this issue, uh, this issue that Apollos had uh, not really getting the whole Holy Spirit thing, it's not just something that 
Apollos dealt with. There are other disciples who, who haven't yet heard about, about what God is doing through the Holy Spirit. Paul comes to Ephesus after Apollos heads out to Corinth, and he comes, he comes across these disciples, people who, who know Jesus, who follow after him. And he asks them, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're just like genuinely confused by the question. And I, I just love their response. Not only did we not receive the Holy Spirit, we don't even know what they're talking about when you say the Holy Spirit. Like, we, we have no context for this statement. And, and, and so the, the narrative goes on. It says, Paul asked some questions. Into what then were you baptized, he asked them. Well, into John's baptism, they replied. It's the Apollo situation. And, and Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and to prophesy. And now there were about 12 men in all. Okay, so what's going on here? It's pretty straightforward, actually. Paul meets some new believers, and here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't start to question if they really believed the right way. Right? He doesn't, he's not like, ooh, we just have this kind of hat, mm, you know? I mean, he sees a lot in them that's going on. He, he, he doesn't go on questioning their salvation, right? Because I, I just don't think that's what Paul's feeling here. That's not seem to be what the text is communicating. Paul simply recognizes that these are sincere believers, disciples of Jesus, people who actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They've heard about the coming Messiah. They repent in anticipation of knowing their Savior, but they've never been given, never been taught, never been made aware that Jesus, what Jesus is doing now in the world, that he's actually baptizing people in the Spirit. Right? So I mean, I've got a little checklist, right? Paul recognizes that they're, they've got three other things. The most important things are down. Yeah, faith in Jesus. They've got repentance. They've turned from their sin. They're living as disciples. It calls them disciples. But they don't have this baptism in the Holy Spirit thing. It's just, it's not like it's, it's like a huge problem. It's just like an incomplete list. Like if I went to the grocery store and I had four things on the list and I came home with three, I'm going back to the grocery store. I know how that is. That's why you make lists. <laughs> and Paul is, Paul is you're doing it. He's just, he's just taking an inventory. And then he's just like, oh, you, you don't know about that. And it's not like a judgy thing. It's not a, whoa, you must have some deficiency in your faith. You must not have enough faith. It's a, oh, you're missing the best part. That's all it is. Paul just saying, oh, I get it. Like you, you, you like, you get Good Friday. You get that Jesus paid the price for your sins. You get that you need to turn away from your sin. Like you get that you need to be a disciple and follow after him. And, and you have like a new identity in Christ. But you don't get the resurrection. Like you're not, you don't get Easter yet. You don't get that there's power now. Like that you don't have to wander alone and simply operate from duty. Oh, there's something so much better. Paul just, Paul just says, oh, let, let, me, let me tell you about this thing. Like there's something more. Again, not deficiency not that you're not saved, not that you're, it's just that you're missing the best part. That's really what he's, he's going down here. It's like they seize these guys, he thinks they're doing well, but they need more, and the solution is simple. He just instructs them, just be baptized. 
Not the baptism of repentance like John's baptism. That was like a, a good baptism. A baptism in preparation for coming of the Messiah. But now that he's come, and now that you know who he is, and now that you know what, it's, what he's opened up for you, which is a life with God, then you need to be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, like it says in verse 5. And when you do that, what happens? Well, actually, in the text, look at the text. When they do that, what happens? Nothing. It, not immediately. Nothing, nothing happens immediately. They don't just come out of the water and they're speaking in tongues. That's not what the text says, right? They come out of the water, probably getting their towels, you know, giving the hugs, taking the photos, baptized, new life in Jesus. It's all great. Um, but it's not until Paul comes up to them, lays hands on them, and prays for them that they suddenly begin speaking in tongues, and they have this experience of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This kind of like thing that they can't even understand. They don't even know what's going on here. Um, and in the book of Acts, it's really interesting. If we're trying to figure out the connection between baptism in the name of Jesus and gifts coming, the book of Acts is not willing to fit into a mold. Like three instances, okay? Three, three teachings, uh, instances from the book of Acts, Acts 2, 38, um, they're pretty small up here, but this is Peter. He's like speaking to everybody uh, after Pentecost. And what he says is, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that seems pretty straightforward, right? Repent, be baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then look, like, look at Acts 8. And we've looked at this before. Acts 8 uh, in Samaria, it says this. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, in this instance, this formula, which we might think about, anticipating next to repent, be baptized, start to have these manifestations of the Spirit, it doesn't play out this way, at least in Acts 8. There's this uh, period, this lag time. They get baptized, no, not questioning if they're saved or not, but saying, oh, just like the Holy Spirit thing didn't start. I don't know why. And then, I mean, if you look at Acts 10, it's crazy. Uh, this is my favorite part. While Peter was still speaking these words, because he's talking to a bunch of Gentiles in Cornelius' household, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Now, pre-baptism. The Holy Spirit is just pouring out himself on people before they've even been baptized. Well, that totally disrupts the, the process that we thought we could have. We, we thought we could impose the system on how the Holy Spirit operates in, in baptism, but here it's not. It says, And all the circumcised believers came together with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the waters of baptism for those who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, right? So he's saying, like, I mean... The Holy Spirit's already moving. He's already doing so. I mean, I guess we should baptize them because I don't, it's out of order. It seems like not right. But I mean, definitely we got to move along in the process here. So I mean, what's going on here? Well, I think first it's good to recognize that the Spirit is not that interested in our desire to have things be really orderly, Right? He's just like messing with us. He's like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm so excited about these Gentiles coming to faith. I'm just going to pour, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pre 
baptize them in the Spirit before they've even done this whole baptizing in the name of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is like sovereign and just going to do some stuff and is so excited and wants to make it so clear to everybody, no, man, these people have faith and I've accepted them. So I'm just going to make it so clear to everybody that nobody can doubt it. Because people were going to start to be, mm, I don't know about those Gentiles, because they're sort of ugly, and they're just like not cool, and can they really have the same kind of identity that we have, and they're, they're probably not good enough for that. The Holy Spirit makes it super clear. But beyond that, what we see going on is that baptism is a sign of what Jesus has done for us. It functions in your life. It doesn't, it doesn't make the Holy Spirit come into your life. But it's just a sign of what Jesus has done. Jesus has, as we, he, he died on the cross, he opens the way for a life with God so that you can have a relationship with God. And he brings us into that life by grace as we just trust him. And in baptism, all that we're doing is that we are celebrating the fact that Jesus has opened up life, like marvelous light shining in a dark place. Baptism is just coming and saying, I believe that to be true. I was like just myself, stuck, lost, had no vision for my life beyond just whatever meaning I could make from it. And suddenly Jesus showed up in mercy and he tells me that I can have a hope and a future, and a life with him, not because I'm so great, but because he is so great, and he is so merciful, and I can actually let go from this place of being an outcast, from being distant, from being not a person, not having an identity, from being feeling and ex believing myself to be alone, and unwanted, and unloved, and Jesus died so that I could go into the very holiest of holies and have a relationship with God himself, that he just says, I want you here so much. I desire to invite people back to this place so that they could be renewed and restored and have a new life, and I am doing everything that's needed to make a way. And when we are baptized, we're just saying, yeah, I believe that. I have a life with God now, a life with Father, Son, Holy Spirit now because of what Jesus has done on the basis of his work, not on my own. And once we come to recognize that, that we now have life, our baptism is just like coming from an understanding and walking into that reality. And what we see in the book of Acts is that what follows that is, tends to be, the Spirit pouring out gifts. Now, let me just bring it to the present day, okay, right? Because I'm talking about then. Is it the same now? Because like I said earlier, this is a contentious issue. And if I had to really flatten the, the, the way of understanding it, I would say that there are two camps, right, in present uh, Bible-believing Christians. There are those who highly emphasize the importance of the manifestation of gifts, so things like speaking in tongues and prophecy, right? And those tend to be labeled as charismatic or Pentecostal. 
believers. Like that's a camp. It's a theological camp within orthodoxy, within uh, Bible-believing Christians. And at times, historically, though I will say now it is, it is less the case, some of those streams of believers, those, those Pentecostal and charismatic believers, either outright said or implied that unless you have these experiences, speaking in tongues, prophesying, baptism of the Spirit, that's like really like a, a highly charged present thing, they either said, literally in their doctrines, or implied, most of them have backed off from the, the overtness, that unless you do those things, you can't be assured of your salvation. Okay? I mean, some, some, not all, but some Pentecostals especially hard, are, are saying like, unless you're doing this, you're not really saved. Or you can't really know that you're saved. And then, of course, on the other side of that, there are kind of more traditional evangelical Christians who believe, well, that if we've been uh, baptized and we're believers in Jesus, then we have the Holy Spirit. We don't like need to look to this second, what they would say is a, a second baptism. Like we, we, when we believe, like they, they believe that we, we have the Holy Spirit. They have everything they need for salvation. And if these 12 disciples, they would, they would look at this text and they say, well, if these 12 disciples had just been baptized and there was no subsequent manifestation of gifts, then they would have been in heaven. They would have been saved people, right? Because they were genuine believers. But the text doesn't question if they actually believe. The text doesn't question if they're actually disciples. The text doesn't question if they actually were repentant. And, and very cons more conservative evangelicals will want to say, that's enough. But let me say this. The gifts of... And I'm not, I'm, my, my, my intention is not to wade into this. But I will say this definitively. The gifts of the Spirit are good. They are consistently presented in Scripture as good. Not only in the book of Acts, but also in all of Paul's letters. If Paul was anything, if he was distinct in anything among the people spreading the gospel in his day, it was that he was an apostle of the Holy Spirit. He was not willing to settle for less than that people would have a, a powerful awareness, not just of the doctrine that they have been entered into a life with God and into a life where the, the presence of God is there, but that they should actually experience that and know it. Paul was all about that. I mean, 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love, amen, that's what Christians do, and desire spiritual gifts. If you want, if you want me to proof text you right here. <laughs> I mean, and also just all the rest of the book of Corinthians is a really good example of that. And Galatians and everything that Paul wrote. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. Paul was so into, and, in, and he commended the church to desire spiritual gifts. Not because if they didn't have them, they weren't saved, but because... Easter's, a good Friday is great, but Easter is what we're invited into. Like, like a fullness of life is what we're invited into. Um, it is good that we should desire and set our expectations that God would be, I think, manifestly present in our lives. 
I'm not, I'm not willing to say it looks like X. It looks like Y. But that we would, we would have and experience God to be manifestly present in our life. It is good and it is right that we should hunger for the work of, of the Spirit in our lives now. I like how Simon Ponsonby, uh, which I just never get sick of saying his name, Simon Ponsonby says this, he says this, and I, I, I pretty much agree with this. It strikes me that the charismatic and Pentecostal tradition has the right experience with the flawed doctrine, with respect, and that the conservative evangelicals have the right doctrine, but often a flawed experience. All Christians, by faith in the finished work of Christ, have drunk of that living water and have been baptized in the Spirit into Christ. But many have no theology, expectancy, or desire to know the Spirit's power for service, the deep emotional and existential immediacy with God, or the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. Those who led us to Christ have not inculcated this expectation or theology in us, and the Lord who lives with us will not force these things on us. Many are content to live out their Christian lives looking back to the cross and looking forward to heaven without truly tasting now the age to come by the Holy Spirit. And he cites Hebrews 6.4. The Pentecostals and Charismatics may have expressed what they have experienced wrongly, but at least they have experienced it. Many evangelical Christians know biblically that they have been baptized in the Spirit, but they do not know it existentially. They are often strangers to the who, what, and why of Him, the Holy Spirit. Their privation is an omission of recognition and appropriation of the Spirit's life. I know that I'm married to my wife, Tiffany, Simon, Simon speaking, uh, because of the intimate love we share, not because of the ring or the certificate of marriage. Sadly, some Christians know that they're baptized by the Spirit, pointing to the document, but they've never been on their honeymoon. Uh, guys, like, stop. I'm not going to fight with you about this, this statement. You can take it or not. But here's what I think you can't deny in the text, unless you want to... Okay, I will call that... If you want to be a cessationist, which I think is just playing games with the text... I haven't made anyone too mad, but um, I, I just don't, don't see much of a biblical um, basis for believing that the Holy Spirit has totally ceased operating in, in, in the way that he has uh, historically in the book of Acts. Just don't see that in Scripture. We can have that conversation if you want. Um, but, like, and I'm not going to go in and, and do all this stuff and try to pick sides, but what is very clear to me is that the expectation of more of God's presence is always commended in Scripture. The expectation that we are, by faith, because we now have a life with God, are entered into God's presence, and that will overflow, like, like as a foretaste of heaven. That's very clear in Scripture. And I think so many of us are uh, just trying to be satisfied with less of God, when he just said, I, I have so much more to give to you. Look, I, I'll, I'll share just a little bit of my own experience. 
I was baptized with the Holy Spirit in 2010, and the only weird thing that happened, I didn't speak in tech, I didn't do all that stuff, but the only weird thing that happened is that I walked away and I, I can no longer believe that I'm making this up. I just can't because I went alone by myself, didn't have any music playing, and I just, I just kind of studied the scriptures and I prayed, okay, God, you say this is true, so I'm here. And then just like God showed up in a way uh, that I, I couldn't have made up. That's all. Kind of like faith is just hurling yourself onto the promises of God and saying, catch! <laughs> and God caught me. And so I can't believe that he's not there anymore. It was a trust fall, right? Worship team's going to come up, and we're going to invite Sharon Brown up here for a second too because uh, Sharon is going to lead us as a church into a time of prayer and just like seeking the Lord together, okay? And I, I just said, Sharon, do whatever, you, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to because, you know, same Holy Spirit. So... Come on up. I'm going to stay down here with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, can we all stand? And let's just uh, let's just bow together. Um, uh, Holy Spirit. Um, you have been invited here, and we know that you are here, and we know that you come in power. Um, and I know sometimes we don't feel that power, and sometimes we don't even sense that you're in our lives. We don't know how to uh, because of the things that we carry. But we know that you see us, and you see us so clearly, and you love us so much, and you want to come to us in a way that is so amazing and so life-giving. So we invite you to deeper places within us right now. And just pray that all the distractions will flee and that... Um, we will allow you right now to begin a greater process, a greater work inside of us. I know we, each of us come here this morning with um, things that are on our hearts, things that uh, we have been carrying, things that may go very deep for us. I'd like us to try and look at some of those things this morning as we're, we keep our heads bowed. And it's just between, right now, this is the Holy Spirit's work and his power in revealing to us. I'd like us to think of just one word that expresses where we've been or where we are today. And I'm, I'm gonna read a few words and just, if any of those resound with you, just, just think about it. Just one word, identify one thing inside. Today, I feel fear. I feel overwhelmed. I feel anger, resentment, bitterness. I feel confusion, 
I feel helpless. I feel loss in my life. I feel abandonment. I feel sorrow and grief. I feel tired. Maybe I feel hopeless about a situation or relationship. I feel discouraged. Or maybe you, you're sensing that you need something. I need comfort, a longing fulfilled, a healing of physical pain or an injury or an unresolved physical issue that I've had for a while. Maybe you feel joy, but you sensed your need to be more thankful. Maybe you feel goodness, but you don't know how to live out that goodness. Let's each of us just reflect right now and think of one word that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us right now. for these one words that reveal something about us. Satan, we, we are against you. We are against you keeping us from one another. You, we are against you from not wanting us to be vulnerable. We're against you for, for trying to make us feel like we're not worthy or that we are too proud to reveal ourselves. Because we know that when we do, you set the captives free. And the power of the isolation and the silence is dismantled when we can come and seek prayer and be vulnerable. So I'm gonna ask that um, we just turn in groups of three or four, just right where you're at. And if you're willing to say your one word, you don't have to tell your story, just say your one word in that group and then pray for one another and let God set us free. Let us join with each other in being able to carry each other's burdens and lift one another up Rejoice with one another, weep with one another, because that's what we're told to do, because that's how the body works, and that's how we become one and united, and that we can just be who God wants us to be. So can we take a moment now and just turn right where you're at, three or four, gather together, and just reveal your one word, and then pray for one another. <laughs> 